0: Lord our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our passage today is Titus 3, verses 1 to 2. It's really the last Section there of verse 1, the last few words of verse 1 and then verse 2. So for context, I'm going to read out Titus 3, 1 to 2. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is God's word. Many years ago, uh, well over a decade ago, I was fortunate enough to represent Australia a few times. And uh, one time in particular, we went over to Canada to play in a Junior World Championship. And uh, we would often wear our Australian track suits or um, obviously our uniforms around. And whenever we were in public, uh, we were reminded that while we were wearing our Australian uniforms. We were effectively representing Australia while we were in Canada. So, what we did would reflect upon our country, and we had to be careful uh, with our conduct, and particularly after we won the gold medal of of the junior worlds. We were heading off to celebrate at a uh, public venue that we had hired for our celebration and uh, all of us were wearing our Australian uniforms, at least our shirts, um, and we were about to do all sorts of things that I would not uh, partake in now or recommend doing. And uh, our manager uh, was very quick, as soon as he saw that we were wearing our Australian uniforms, immediately said, there is no way that you will be wearing your Australian uniforms tonight. He obviously knew what we were going to get up to, knew there was no hope in calling us to good conduct. So the best thing he could do was just to um, remove every single thing linked to being Australian and hope that it wouldn't reflect all that badly upon our country. Now, I say that because we as followers of Jesus citizens of heaven. We are citizens of a heavenly realm and we are temporary residents here on earth. That's why we have the identity of being pilgrims and sojourners. Citizenship is not of this world. So while we are in this world, we represent Christ and we do not have the luxury of taking off our heavenly citizenship for a time so that we can indulge in all sorts of immoral practices. If you follow Jesus, you have committed to the no takes back, uh, no takes back citizenship where everything that we do is to the glory of God and we are ambassadors, of Christ. So how we conduct ourselves in this location, wherever we are, will be a reflection of our true citizenship. So of course, we must represent Christ well. As ambassadors of Christ, we are called to live with good conduct so that Christ will be glorified in our lives. So flowing on from what we went over last week, which is Paul in verse 1 calling Uh, Titus to then call the Cretan church uh, to live faithfully engaging with the world around them. And the first issue there is being submissive to earthly rulers and authorities. So under this submission to earthly rulers and authorities, Paul continues his instructions toward us by detailing the type of people we ought to be toward those around us. And the way Paul puts this is by detailing these character traits that we ought to have. So if we stick with our analogy of being a heavenly citizen living as temporary residents in this world, these character traits that Paul details here are laid out like the marks of our heavenly citizenship. So we, uh, most of us, have likely received Australian citizenship or the country of our citizenship by birth. We do nothing for it. We are simply born in this country and we receive citizenship. But that alone isn't enough for us to prove our citizenship. The governments don't just take our word for it. We need things that actually show our citizenship. So we need a passport, we need our birth certificate, we need our Medicare card, we need these. Um, identification documents that actually provide citizenship. We've done nothing to earn or deserve citizenship. Those of us who have been born in Australia, we were just simply born into it. And yet there will be these things that we then have to have that prove our citizenship. Likewise, for our heavenly citizenship, we do nothing for it. We are born into it. We are dead In our sins beforehand, we are simply born, rebirthed by the Spirit. And then there will be these marks of our life that become the evidence that we have indeed been born again. Our passports and our birth certificates are things like these marks laid out here, like avoiding quarreling, speaking evil of no one, being gentle and showing perfect courtesy toward all people, These marks of our heavenly citizenship demonstrate that we have indeed been born again. There has been a transformation that has happened. And so today we're going to work through these marks. And first off the rank is the back end of verse 1 where Paul talks about uh, being eager to do good work. He says, be ready remind them to be ready for every good work notice that it says here that we are to be ready for every good work we are to be prepared to engage in whatever work is necessary not simply those things that we feel a an inclination toward because it will make us feel better in some way a key ingredient of our society is apathy We've spoken about this many times before. Apathy is a a severe lack of enthusiasm or care for essential things, particularly like how one is made right with the creator of this world, knowing that we are sinful. There is a tremendous apathy around essential spiritual things in this culture that we live in. And what's the key element of apathy? The key element of apathy is selfishness. The reason why it's selfishness is because if apathy is a severe lack of enthusiasm, we know that barely anyone is apathetic across the board. There are always parts of our life, things we may involve ourselves in, that we get awfully enthusiastic about. And usually these things that we get enthusiastic about are things that are either gonna benefit us or it's something that is threatening our ability to be comfortable or be prosperous in some way. And so all of a sudden we start to get enthusiastic about it. Whereas if that very same thing was happening to someone else but it had no, it would have no impact on us, we would likely be apathetic about it. So the key ingredient of apathy is selfishness. And we often swim in this water of selfishness that only cares about things which will benefit us. And that is not the mark of the follower of Jesus. Notice that Paul does not say here, Be prepared for any good work that suits your desires and fits in with your schedule and is going to buffer you up and give you self-esteem. He doesn't say that. We are to be prepared for every good work. Things that we may not enjoy in that moment, we are to be prepared for every good work. That is not conditional upon whether that work will benefit us. It is simply whether that work is a good work that will glorify the Lord. So a question for us when we think about this, Are you prepared for every good work or do you often find yourself prepared simply for those works that are going to benefit you or the works that uh, you may feel threatened by if that didn't happen? Is there a selfish readiness? Because we ought to be prepared for every good work in an unconditional way. To engage in good works as heavenly citizens surely means that we must do this in a way which reflects the source of our citizenship, Christ himself, who showed no partiality and demonstrated absolute selflessness in him giving of himself in our place. This particular idea of good works is tied to being a good citizen in the location you're in. Notice that it comes on the back of Paul's call for us to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities. So it flows out of our call to be responsible and respectful members of our society. And this theme of good works is, Uh, used as well in Peter's letter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says something along the same lines as what Paul says here, where he calls Christians to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We are to be do-gooders. This is where this particular word that Peter uses is always, uh, not always, often tied to being a good citizen, which means engaging in works which benefit your society, which benefit other people. Simple things like cleaning up rubbish in your neighborhood, even rubbish that you did not make, but that will benefit your society and care for God's creation or helping that person who's clearly struggling to carry their bags, even going out of your way, to ensure that that person is helped. The theme of good works is wrapped up in being a productive member of our society for the good of others and ultimately for the glory of God. And rather than giving a a specific exhaustive list of how this works and exactly what we should do, it seems that Paul is mostly concerned with a, a sensible godly and respectful character, which then becomes the foundation for our good works. And, and that's what he details here. It's, it's these character traits that, as Paul said in chapter 2 of verse 10, talking about bond servants being submissive to their own masters, it's these sort of character traits that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's these sorts of things that adorn the gospel, that make it attractive, that uh, sort of add to the beauty of the teachings of God, these character traits. So flowing on from these character traits, the second mark of the heavenly citizen here is, is soundness of speech. We are told from the start of verse 2 to speak evil of no one, literally to not blaspheme. Remember the warnings last week where our default posture toward leaders should not be one of antagonism and rebellion. That shouldn't be our default posture and likewise our default shouldn't be to ridicule others to damage their reputation, to mock people, even though we like to do it in a jovial way, that shouldn't be a default within us to mock people, especially those that we don't know. Now this does not mean that we can never speak evil of no one, so Paul clearly says, speak evil of no one, with Scripture interpreting Scripture. We can look at Paul's own life in Acts 13, where there was a man called Elimus the magician. And as Paul was communicating the gospel to the pro-council in Acts 13... As someone was actually hearing the message of Christ, this, this magician was trying to turn the person away from the message. And Paul looks at, looks straight at him and says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. That's That's quite evil language there that Paul is using. And that's warranted because in this context... Someone is directly opposing the message of Christ and Paul was the first-hand witness to this. He was, it wasn't just hearsay. Paul actually saw it. He saw the person uh, resisting Christ, even trying to turn someone away from Christ. And so Paul looks at him and speaks evil of him in a righteous way. So we call out evil, In these types of scenarios, when it is actually established, when someone is turning someone away from Christ, or when they are distorting intentionally the message of truth, and we speak it out of concern for the glory of God and the health of those around us. So speaking evil of no one in the context of what Paul is talking about, Is to ensure that we are never making unfounded claims that would destroy someone's reputation or simply not build up those around you. Language that would be corrupting. And he talks about this, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, where he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up those who hear. Let no corrupting talk, let no evil speech come out of your mouth. The word corrupting relates to being diseased. It's uh, used where Jesus speaks of a bad tree bearing bad fruit. A bad tree bears diseased fruit. Evil language is like a disease. It's unhealthy. It spreads through your hearers and it corrupts people. It does not edify. It brings down. So a question for us to reflect upon. Is your speech corrupting or damaging? Does your speech tend toward bringing down rather than lifting up? Is there an element of evil speech, of corrupting language in your life? See, not only do we not speak evil of others, but as followers of Jesus, we ought to speak Words of building up. Notice Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, for edifying people. Be people of encouragement. This is what we are called to do, where even our corrections and rebukes of people in our community are done ultimately to restore them to healthiness. They are done for building up, not for tearing down. Our third Mark here is to avoid quarrelling. The word here is is a, actually a positive word that means to be peaceable, but we have it translated as a, a negative to avoid quarrelling, to not quarrel, to not be a fighter over unnecessary battles. It describes someone who has the right flexibility to recognize that not everything is black and white. And not everything they disagree with requires them to express their disagreement. There are times where it is unnecessary to do that. They have the flexibility uh, to not dispute things unnecessarily. People who quarrel usually do so from a place of self-preservation. Quarrels break out because we often feel a need to defend ourselves or simply a need to assert our dominance. It's where our desire to dispute things erodes any desire to maintain peace within relationships. We have this desire to dispute someone or something and that overpowers our desire to actually have peace with that person. Now this is not talking about simply keeping peace where we are never confrontational. It's talking about a disposition that treats every contentious conversation as a hill to die on and fails to consider the other person in that argument, in that issue. Perhaps a way to discern whether we engage in this type of quarreling is to ask ourselves, is there usually a lot of collateral damage in your conversations? Where you notice that after you've had a contentious conversation, people tend to avoid you for a while. Or people don't even like to get in a disputation with you because they know how it's going to end. Do you often find yourself arguing over trivial issues, over unimportant issues where you've been talking for a while and you have enough sense to realise afterwards to say, why were they even so passionate about that? That was such a minor thing. Or is your instinct... In those moments, to protect yourself, to immediately go to this place where you need to protect your image. You need to win the argument because otherwise it would result in you being wrong and that would be the worst possible thing. The mark of a heavenly citizen is a peace, peaceable nature that, like we read in Proverbs, it actually delights in overlooking an offense, overlooking minor offenses. Of our brothers and sisters, we delight in that because we avoid quarreling, we avoid disputing over unnecessary things, over treating every heel as one to die on. And finally, we have gentleness and perfect courtesy. This is where Paul says to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I'm keeping these two together because. Um, In the original language, they are just one word, one word for gentle and one word for perfect courtesy. And they have a large level of crossover. At their core, both of these words really mean gentleness. And most of the time in their isolation, they are simply translated as gentleness. Uh, So I'm keeping these two together. And we can see their connection even clearer in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul is uh, entreating the Corinthians he is wanting to draw them back in to, to reconciliation with him to affirming him and he says I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ these are the same words here the exact same words where Paul says the meekness and gentleness of Christ and this ought to really drive it home for us that, what we are called to here in Titus chapter 3, verse 2, what we are called to is the very characteristics of our meek and gentle Savior who would not break a bruised reed and would not put out a faintly lit wick. Which, that is extremely difficult. It is extremely difficult to even keep a flame. A faintly lit wick, because the word, which sometimes is will not put out a smoldering rock or will not put out a faintly lit wick, it's hard enough. It's like describing something that's not even a flame. It's hard enough to keep it going, let alone not put it out. That's how gentle Christ is. Gentleness and perfect courtesy that we are called to following Christ's model is where we approach others like a surgeon with a delicate scalpel rather than a butcher just madly swinging an aggressive knife around. There is a delicacy in this, gentleness and perfect courtesy. We are to be people with eyes of grace. This is gentleness and perfect courtesy, people with eyes of grace, which means that we gift others what they may not deserve. That's what grace is. It's a gift. And if we have eyes of grace, we often gift others what they may not deserve. So gentleness and perfect courtesy looks like being gentle and respectful toward those who are antagonistic and rude toward us. We are intentional to greet people, to be welcoming, even when we know they never greet us and they are most certainly not welcoming. We offer a peaceful posture of listening to those who are grieving and struggling. We are gentle rather than barging in to just fix their problems so they can move on. We are patient, gentle. When it comes to disagreeing with others who perpetuate harmful ideologies like gender theory and pro-abortion. We don't unnecessarily mock the individual. We don't stoop to such a low level to mock them. We, of course, destroy the argument and the unhealthy ideology. We call it out for what it is. But we do this with gentleness and perfect courtesy, which is to say that we don't stoop down to a level of antagonism or mocking unnecessarily. We do it with respect and dignity. Notice something very important in this passage. If we take most of verse 2 together, notice how Paul bookends the verse in, in uh, verse 2 here. Look at the statements from speak evil and then all the way to show perfect courtesy. It starts with no one and then ends with all people. It is certainly inclusive language. Uh, for one of a better term, or lack of a better term, that Paul is using here. It's driving home the need for complete impartiality when it comes to our conduct. To speak evil of no one and to show perfect courtesy toward all kinds of people. We are not courteous simply to those who are courteous toward us. We are courteous to all kinds of people. That's why Jesus says, if you love those who love you, then what good is that? That's what everyone does. That's what sinners and tax collectors do. The love of the follower of Jesus is to be a love that is extended to all kinds of people unconditionally. And this is because we are heavenly citizens who act as ambassadors of Christ, So our conduct toward others ought to follow the same self-giving pattern that we see in Christ himself. So do you have a gentle nature that extends grace toward others, that gifts them something they may not deserve? This is what we are called to as heavenly citizens. Now, something must be said about the reality of persecution and slander toward us in spite of our good conduct, because when you look at these character traits, really, even in a non-Christian society, these are noble traits. Everyone wants uh, someone who is gentle, who shows perfect courtesy toward all people, who doesn't quarrel. These are very commendable attributes, even in a non-Christian society. Now, the thing is, the Bible upholds two certain truths. One is that we must have good conduct amongst pagan people, and this at times will result in praise, mostly toward God, but even our works will be praised. They are praiseworthy. They are good works. The second truth the Bible upholds is that we will be hated and maligned and persecuted as followers of Jesus and these are two truths that the Bible upholds. So how do we reconcile these two truths? Because let's be honest, looking at these characteristics, if someone lived in this way, who was ready for every good work, who did not speak evil, who avoided quarreling, who was gentle and showed perfect courtesy toward all people, even in a non-Christian society, you would not be hated or persecuted because of that. At most, you might be called a goody two-shoes or a bit boring, but really these are commendable attributes. So why is the assumption biblically that we should have good conduct, which would be praiseworthy, but we will be maligned and hated? The reality is because there is an unavoidable offense where our allegiance to Christ is clear. And this should hit us in the face with the reality of what faithfulness entails. Faithfulness cannot simply be praise because of our good conduct, nor can it simply be hatred because of our allegiance to Christ. Our lives ought to be a mixture of praise because of our good conduct and hatred because of our unashamed allegiance to the truth of Christ, which is a rock of offense to many. So the hatred will come as we walk faithfully, with no shame, as followers of Jesus, as we boldly proclaim that there is a way of salvation. And for a way of salvation, it means that someone has done something wrong, which is sin, which is something that we all have to take accountability for. And we proclaim that because people must understand the reality of sin to then understand God's grace, which is the, the root of salvation. So the way we truly spread the aroma of Christ, the way we truly represent Christ well, is both with good conduct that should be praised, but also with unashamed allegiance to Christ, which will result in persecution and hatred at times. Now finally, notice that our good conduct is never isolated from the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Christ. So what we do should flow out of who we are and who we are is defined by the good news of Jesus Christ. This is where practice flows out of identity. So this call to have a godly character in the midst of the world comes in the context of what Paul says over the next few verses that we will cover next week in detail, but it's important to look at the context now to understand that this Good conduct is not isolated from who God says we are in what God has done in Jesus Christ. So from verse 3 and on, Paul reminds us, as he's reminding uh, the Cretan people, that we can never have any form of superiority or pride in our good character and conduct because we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now, just as a side point, notice that Paul assumes that we are no longer like this because there are too many people, too many churches out there now that perpetuate this narrative of us just being broken together. Nobody's perfect Trying to be welcoming, it's like a misguided hospitality and wanting to be welcoming to people that then allows people to stay untransformed and in patterns of sin. Notice that the assumption here is that we are no longer foolish, that we are no longer disobedient, that we are no longer led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. We are no longer like that. Paul says, remember, you were, past tense, you were once like that, but you have moved on. The expectation is that we grow in holiness and that we demonstrate this through good conduct that glorifies God. Now, that's a side point there. That's for free. But back to the uh, passage here from verse 4 on, Paul gives the context of where our good conduct flows out of. And again, we will cover this next week. But just look at verse 5 in particular where Paul says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope Of eternal life. Just look particularly at verse 5. We bring nothing to the table in our salvation. God saved us not because of anything we have done, not even any foreseen faith that some people like to claim that we might conjure up within us. No, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace and faith, which is the gift of God. Grace and faith together are the gift of God. A dead person can't have faith, but it is the gift of God. So we bring nothing to the table. We are not saved because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We must see how our salvation by God's absolute mercy relates to our good conduct as set out in these marks here. God's sovereign mercy means that we do not deserve what we receive by God withholding what we deserve, which is his punishment. That is his mercy, that he withholds punishment because we have sinned and the wages of sin is death and he withholds that from us in order to then gift us something wonderful in Jesus Christ. And the reality of his sovereign mercy, meaning that we must come to grips with the fact that we deserve punishment. This hurts our pride. This hurts human pride to accept the fact that we bring nothing to the table, that as unregenerate people, even our righteous deeds are filthy rags before him. And this is key because these marks of good conduct that we have gone over can only truly survive where our pride has been shattered by the gospel. See, what is the alternative to all of these marks of good conduct that we have gone over? I believe they could all be summed up by selfishness and pride. We speak evil of others because it makes us feel superior or brings us brings them down to our level because we don't like them being higher than us. We speak evil of them or we like to assert ourselves above them. We quarrel because we enjoy asserting our dominance in some way. We have a prideful tendency. We are harsh, inflexible, and then selective with what we do because our lives revolve around what is best for us. Pride and selfishness is the great barrier to the good conduct required of heavenly citizens. But pride cannot remain dominant where someone has come to grips with the reality of the gospel, of God's sovereign mercy. Because the gospel teaches us that we are saved not because of anything we have done, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by his own mercy. George Whitfield, a famous... Evangelist and preacher of the first great awakening in the early 18th century, he says on the doctrine of election I cannot see how true humbleness of mind can be attained without a knowledge of the doctrine of election. For if we deny election, we must partly at least glory in ourselves. But our redemption is so ordered that no flesh should glory in the divine presence, and hence it is that the pride of man opposes this doctrine because according to this doctrine and no other he that glories must glory only in the lord when we see our salvation is by god's sovereign mercy pride is swept away and all that remains is an empowering gratitude that propels us into good conduct. It's like the example that I've given before. If you remember being at school and uh where you had a PE lesson playing some kind of sport often you would get the two captains that then would pick the teams and of course the best players would be picked first and everyone knew who the worst players were especially who the worst player was and you may have been that person in school and it's quite a demoralizing thing to see everyone else go up there and you're left behind and then it's always a reluctant oh we'll take Bob come on up here and You know, no one wants to pass the ball to him, and everyone knows that he's terrible. Now, imagine if that captain picked Bob as the first pick. Unless Bob is delusional, he would not have any pride to say, ah, finally they recognize my talent after all. No, he knows he's terrible. He's been picked last all this time. He would just be grateful that this has happened. Now, the difference with that analogy and God's sovereign election is that, of course, God the Father doesn't reluctantly pick us by mercy and then continue to view us as this terrible person. So we shouldn't have that thought. The difference with God's sovereign election is that God the Father elects us when we should have been last, when we should not have been picked at all, and then He elevates us to this place in His family as sons and daughters, and He looks upon us as though we have done everything right because of what Jesus has done, because of the life that Jesus lived in our place. This is what justification is, It is God's declaration that we are righteous. So when he views us, he views us through the lens of Christ and looks upon us as his beloved son, his beloved daughter, with whom he is well pleased. This is justification. So this is why it is empowering, and we are full of gratitude, because we should have been last, we should not have been picked, but we are picked, we are elevated to the first place, and we are looked upon as perfect children. And where this has been grasped, we cannot stay in a place of constantly asserting our dominance or preserving ourselves through self-regard. We can't. God's sovereign election sweeps pride away. This is where our selfless conduct comes from. Because in the gospel, we see the ultimate selflessness in God giving of himself to save a lost people who do not deserve saving. And as we come face to face with that reality, that same selfless love that has been poured out into our hearts that overflows from within us by a work of the Spirit as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and our good conduct flows from that place. And this becomes the evidence that we have indeed received this citizenship. So we must reflect Christ well. We must have good conduct and we must remember that our good conduct flows out of the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ, where he saved us, not because of anything we have done, but according to his own sovereign mercy.